But Lord, as we do that, we look to your cross and we look to all that you have done for us. To think what spirit dwells within us, to think what Father smiles are ours, to think that you died to win us. What a glorious thought. God, would you pull us into that thought as we sit under the preaching of your word and would you bless Scotty as he comes to us and we ask this in Christ's name, amen. Y'all can be seated. Try again. There we go. Excellent. Favorite thing you ate last night? Give me a shout out. What was really good? Anybody make it to Hattie B's? Eat the nuclear chicken you got to sign your life away for to eat it, that you won't sue them if you die. Yeah, some hot stuff. Anybody go into, um, make it down to Franklin, the true first fruits of the new heaven and new earth. Anybody make it away to Franklin? Well, there's still time. Well, listen, I am so thankful to move us back into this magnificent storyboard of Asaph's life that really reminds us that in the gospel, every one of us is called to be a character in God's story and a carrier of God's story. Now, sometimes in uh, vocational ministry, we get more wrapped up in being the carrier of the story. We're planning, we're working, we're doing our ministry chops, and all that stuff is so important. But gang, the most important thing you'll ever do for anybody that's sitting in front of you, anybody that's looking to you to lead them in some way to the knowledge of God, no matter if you get married, if you ever have babies, the rest of your life, the most important gift you'll give anybody is to understand your calling to live as a character in God's story. We said last night that Every one of us matters and none of us is the point. And that's a part of what we find in Asaph. And Asaph's part of a community. It's a part of an incredible calling that began in Eden that's already beginning to offer the aroma of the grass of the new earth. But he needed to come to a place in his story to understand my heart's not good. My, my body is aching. There is a disconnect between what I believe and what I know to be truly real in my life. And that's what I love about the Bible. Those stories are everywhere. We didn't have to look far to find Asaph because there's so many, there's so many daughters and sons of they hunt for. Is there a music scripture? Now, where we've been, if you want to turn back and I may hunt for, is there a music stand around here? And, an unclaimed one anywhere? That's all right. Right here. Perfect. Yeah, there we go. Go ahead and turn to, back to Psalm 73. Let me, I'm not going to read the psalm again tonight. I'm going to read the last part of it. But let's just remember, uh, let's remind ourselves of those three sections. We started with the first night, the, the beauty of the gift of, of weariness. Um, see, the gospel doesn't call us to be super man and superwoman, it causes us to be human. And uh, you're never more human than when you're coming alive to the implications of the gospel of God's grace. And so weariness is not something to get over, it's something to steward. Stewardship means this is, this is where I am, this is who I am, and, and, and my honoring that, my slowing down enough to consider uh, what 
does this mean? And so the, the gift of weariness, the gift of his weariness that Asaph gave us was important. And then to see, as we talked about more last night, we'll mention just a little bit this evening before we get into the third and final section, which I love to finish with. But this, uh, this gift of Asaph not just saying, here's what it feels like to be me, but here's where I now see my heart was going when functionally the living God was not enough. That all this theology, all this stuff I believed to be true, the songs I wrote, the worship I led, when it really was not existentially enough, this is what I began to see and want and demand. And here's where I went from being simply a discontented person to a very angry person and a lone person. I promise you, the more you do life as monologue and not dialogue, the, the more you will be in that tragic cycle of getting more and more and more bitter and more and more and more alone. And that's why, really, we have the gift of the psalm that shows us he, he brought to the community what it felt like. And uh, as we transition into this further naming our own wander, he gave us his. I gave you some parts of my wandering heart, my story, what led up to my burnout, a couple of more things about that. But then thirdly, we see in this psalm where we want to camp out mostly tonight is, what does it mean to cultivate our wonder? We are made for wonder, but we're prone to wander. And throughout Scripture, we see the fact that that we are, as God's people, Cinderella with amnesia. We have doxological dementia. We keep forgetting who we are, whose we are. And, and, and so the, the life in Jesus is always coming back to the gospel. Martin Luther said we need to hear the gospel every day because we forget it every day. And that's not just the data, as we'll see tonight. We're going to marinate in the metaphor of the gospel as lyric, music, and dance. Three aspects of the gospel that are reflected in the final part of this psalm that, that will be for us a way of thinking about moving forward in life, whether you are in the absolute hardest season of life, may or may not be connected to ministry, or whether it's an incredibly abounding one, fruitful one, uh, and, and energizing one, this this theme of gospel as lyric music and dance, theology, doxology, and missiology, engaging head, heart, and feet is a critical part of the gift that Asaph gives us. Now, let me read the last part of the psalm, and simply I'm going to pick up with a couple of more thoughts about last night in terms of really what was it like to last night with the theme of my finally, by God's grace, hitting the wall and needing to voice a name and begin processing some deep heart wounds. A couple more things about that, but let me read uh, from God's word um, this important phrase. Look back with me in Psalm 73 at um, verse 18, verse 16, and then I'm going to jump down a little bit. Asaph, of course, giving us this sense of uh, despair and depression he knew in his heart, this anger. He says this, when I tried to understand all of this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. First night, we define sanctuary not as a building, but as a reality. It's the presence of God. Uh, Eden was sanctuary. Where did Adam and Eve go to worship God? Where did they go? 
to God himself. They went, they went nowhere and everywhere because everything was the way it was meant to be. So there was no dichotomy, no sectioning off of life. We work to do this, this, and this. And then finally, we go over there and walk with God in the cool of the day. The entirety of life was lived before the gaze of God. How good was it? I love Genesis 2.25, the summary of the life of Eden for which we've been made is captured by Moses in these words. The man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. Now put in context the conversation there. That's not primarily a descriptor of a husband and wife enjoying the great bliss of marital physical pleasure. Oh, it assumes that. But more importantly, it's the first man and the first woman who happened to be married where they were most at home was before the gaze of God, absence of every sense of shame. See, that's what you and I want more than anything else. We want the shame-free intimacy with the living God. We want that. Whether we are married, ever will be married, ever have babies or not, that's what we want. That's what we're made for. It's why the Bible says in eternity, in the new heaven and new earth, we will not live as couples. We will not live as husbands and wives. We will be the collective bride of Christ, and every single one of our relationships will be perfect. You'll never have to ask forgiveness again. You'll never have to explain yourself. You'll never not get somebody. We are destined for life of perfect intimacy with the triune God, which we legally enjoy now, but we want to lean more into and really looking at the various ways we hold people hostage by our unforgiveness or turn them into idols and assume that if, if people... If it's a lover, if it's a friend, if it's a staff, if whoever it is, that somebody somewhere are enough to fill me up. It's an illusion. Asaph enters sanctuary. He comes before the presence of God. He gains perspective. It would not shock me if in the new earth we meet Asaph and he tells us, guess what? Psalm 73 was not the end of the story. It was a mid-chapter. Seven years later, I was even more of a wad than I was then. But God kept bringing me back to himself. What does that look like, smell like, sound like? Some scripture and then some principles will draw about this theme of engaging with the gospel as lyric, music, and dance. Verse 21. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom, not what, whom have I in heaven but you? And being with you, not performing for you, not being fruitful for you, not making you proud of me. No, being with you, I desire Nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let me pray again briefly. Uh, oh, Lord Jesus, thank you that this psalm, like all scripture, uh, leads us to you. Uh, and, and, and to know you and to love you is to know the Father because you reveal the Father. And it's through your work that we are assured that we've been adopted and we have the righteousness we need to cry out, Abba, Father. 
And it's through you, Lord Jesus, that we have received God, the Holy Spirit. You did not lie when you said you would not leave us as orphans, but you would come to us through resurrection, ascension, and the magnificent gift of the one whom with the Father you have enjoyed eternal pleasure and delight and completion forever. And Lord Jesus, it's you that's pursuing us in this psalm tonight. Lord, would you teach us about wonder? Lord, thank you that it is true as my spiritual dad taught me. Lord, back in the mid-70s, cheer up. We are a lot worse off than we think we are. But cheer up. We're so much more known, loved, secure, desired, delighted in than we ever hoped or imagined. Both are true because the gospel's true. Father, make this palpably real and beautiful to us, we pray. Uh, tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. Jack Miller, who, again, I guess is kind of the, at least the, in my generation, the one that first used that language. It's just a great, it's a great summary of the psalm and all of Scripture. Our, our need is far greater than we imagine, and God's provision is greater still. And that's a mark of real gospel-shaped sanctification. Don't, don't be shocked that the more you grow in Jesus, the more you're going to discover of the repentable and the repairable parts of your story. That stuff that really will look like becoming freer from the idols of the heart, but also those places within you that, that require healing, that the, the voicing of some of those stories like I mentioned last night. In fact, let me pick back up there very briefly because I do want to get into far more the how we cultivate wonder and what that looks like. And you're not going to hear anything tonight you've never heard before maybe voiced in a different way, maybe in a timely way that now you can actually accept it as we prepare to, to go back uh, tomorrow. So uh, I, I was sharing last night this list of just several things that really marked my heart, my life, leaving up to burnout at age 50 in the year two, 2000. And I stopped with this one. I failed to deal with significant heart wounds in my story. And uh, and uh, let me just say something about that. S some of you have already begun some of that work. Uh, I think your generation and culture are more at home and, and thinking in terms of, uh, of, of, of wounds. And, and when you begin to do that personal story work, please understand that in the gospel, the goal is not looking for a way to make excuses for you, but to get, but to get information that's going to be so critical to your understanding, why do I default to that particular idol? What about, you know, my, my, uh, my nature, uh, my experience of nurture, uh, the notions I grew up with, and, and the nukes, the nuclear events? How do these things combine not to award me the sweatshirt with the big V victim on it so people will leave me alone, but, but rather to begin to say, if I, I, I do wish I'd seen that sooner, and I'm so glad there's grace for that and grace for that. And watching my wife grow in our marriage, leaning into the story of what it meant for her finally to process growing up in a home of, of, of alcoholism, divorce when her parents were, when she was five, her parents divorced. She's a, Darlene's the youngest of three girls, each of her sisters eight years older than her. And... Uh, and it was, a, it was a crazy making factory. And when we first came to Jesus back in the late 60s or 70s for Darlene, you know, 
there was this nonsense, this corruption of the text from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when we read, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. We thought that meant, we were taught it meant, we hoped it meant that as soon as you become a Christian, anything that's happened to you before that point has no significance on who you are. And, and, and that is one the devil has sold a lot of us. And An and equal lie would be everything that's happened to you gives you a big green card to be a moral moron and just to treat people like they owe you something. No, the freedom of the gospel is we move towards the Lord and we begin to understand sanctuary. Uh, sanctuary is where I began to understand, and I'll describe what that meant more specifically, but beyond dealing with and naming and voicing some heart wounds in my story, the death of my mom and never grieving that, never, never going back to her grave until 40 years after she died, a chapter in my story called Sexual Abuse. It really required of me more than I wanted to give. It was just easier to live in my head giving answers, but this theology that we share is so much richer than just explaining stuff. I came to realize uh, and, 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 and through counseling and some other things I'll talk about, that I had more acquaintances than close friends. I never went back to my 10th, 15th, 20th, 25th, 30th, 40th, or 50th high school reunion because I didn't miss anybody. I managed to live through high school, and I can see this now and understand it and, and grieve it and repent of it and know the freedom of the work that Jesus is doing. I realized I did live so much like the Wizard of Oz, even in ministry, this sense of living behind the curtains and doing important stuff, but propping up the illusion that I was someone other than I really was. And God always sends in Toto in your life and story to open the curtains on the fact that you're just as broken as Dorothy and lost as her. Come on out and be with Scarecrow, be with Tin Man, be with everybody and, and own your brokenness and community and understand that's where the grace is found. And, and, and I lived too alone, tons of acquaintances, but no friends. I was too afraid of being found out. The last thing I'll mention, then we'll shift into the journey of, okay, what, what, what did the Lord begin to do in my life and what's some similar tracks you can think about wherever you are? I didn't take care of myself spiritually, physically, or emotionally. Leading up to my burnout, I was sleeping three hours a night, and I actually thought it was a gift of God. This is awesome. I go to bed at midnight, get up at three, and I can do so much more. Never occurred to me that a part of spirituality is getting a physical, going to a doctor, getting your vitals checked. People that sleep three hours a night typically are what? What condition are they in? They're depressed. See, and, and both sides of, of my family and my wife's family, there is, there is clinical depression. It doesn't mean that just genetically, if somebody in your family story is either an alcoholic or, or has a predisposition towards depression or live it out, that that's marked you, defines you. But you see, I needed to understand I was depressed. I think a part of me was too proud to think that I might ever be in that position to actually take something medically to take the edge off that depression. It's insane. But again, the Christian subculture Darlene and I grew up in the late 60s, early 70s was 
Surely you're not going to a counselor. Pray more. Try harder. Meditate more. Try fasting. I mean, actually, there was, there was, a, there was a, a condescending attitude towards Christians that would look beyond simply the spiritual disciplines to deal with whatever's going on inside of them. That is not your generation, hallelujah, but it may be you because of fear, because of pride, because of something. And understand that sometimes the godliest thing you can do is take a nap. Can't even get an amen for that. I mean, y'all look like you need a nap right now, by the way. It's been a full week, so you can say, all right, can I do one now? Just lean right over in your neighbor's lap. But, you know, um, the gospel claims every aspect of your being, your physicality, your hormones, your, your, your seasons of life, how you think, your, your notions. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's the good news of a gospel that says we're not Gnostics. Richie Sessions was mentioning that yesterday. And some of you heard him say that too much of Christian subculture, even in the Reformed world, we live so Gnostically. We spiritualize everything. What does it mean to be spiritual? The word or the category spirituality means Whatever is a concern of the Holy Spirit, attend to that because that's spiritual, i.e., it belongs to the Holy Spirit. How much of you belongs to the Holy Spirit? Every freaking bit of you. Cell, your cellular structure, who you are, your temperament, you, you're an image bearer of God. And, and I needed to come to see this. And so... Let's talk about this. I'm going to use the rest of my time just kind of talking about what, what did it mean for me to enter sanctuary. If, if sanctuary is, you know, if sanctuary is not assumed that even in vocational ministry that we're living there or going there, what, what again does it look like? And, and what are different avenues to come to know the presence of God? Well, for me, when I hit that wall, I, I needed to come to realize that it's not selfish at all to take care of ourselves and to get the help we need. Now, for me, that involved early on uh, when, when, when finally I got to the point where mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, I had nothing left in the tank. I finally pulled up the white flag in my marriage, and, and I said, honey, I'm ready to go to counseling with you. And... Uh, and, and so it really began for me going to someone that I could trust my heart with. You know, I'm, I'm not a trusting person. Uh, fear of abandonment goes so deep in my bones. You, you've heard some of my story that might explain that. My mom's dead when I am 11. My dad never physically touched me to discipline me or to nurture me. In fact, the very day my mom died in that head-on car crash, my brother and I have one sibling named Moose, not because he has antlers, Just that's just the name he was given in the eighth grade and uh, we were he's 14 I'm 11 sitting in a neighbor's house our dad walks in the room and here's what he says do you boys know what has happened meaning do you know your mom's dead we said yes with that he walked right by us and there was no boys running to dad to hug there was no father that would even have an instinct to come towards us now I don't say that to get pity I say that to let you know sometimes it's not simply what happens to you. It's the absence of stuff that God designed for you that has marked you as deeply as if you were absolutely abused. And to be that young and that tender, my father, and let me say this, the end of my story is 
after my burnout and I become healthy, I move towards him. He's 81, and we have a glorious reconciliation. And we go to mom's grave together before he disappeared into Alzheimer's. But what you need to know is when I say this, my never, father never once in my life ever called me on my birthday to wish me happy birthday. Again, that doesn't make me someone to be pitied, but it means that coming to know God as father has been a journey for me. Because I have no clue what that's supposed to mean. To be fathered by God? Is he just this big, very busy person that you wonder, would you even notice if I come home? See, that's, that's the, a lot of the internal world I was in. And through the gift of burnout, if Jonah needed to become well vomit, I needed to come to the end of myself. If, if, if Jeremiah needed to be in the bottom of a, of a well, you know, there, there are a lot of ways that your heavenly father is going to say, I love you too much to leave you stuck. In fact, I love what this looks like, the pursuing heart of our God, wooing you into wonder, what it looks like in Hosea chapter 2. Fabulous Hosea 2. If you haven't read it recently, read it because God says to Hosea, Hosea, here's what I'm about to do. I'm going to have you marry a whore because that's what my people have become. And here's what I'm going to do. Through you, I'm going to tell this story. I'm going to woo my people into the desert that they might find their song again, that they might know the door of bitterness becoming a door of hope. What kind of God pursues whores? What kind of God runs after prodigals, both of this self-righteous prigness and the hedonistic younger daughter or son that simply says I am going to satisfy every nerve ending in my body what kind of father is it that runs in this room tonight towards the self-righteous ones who are insufferably cold and have been judging everybody's theology this week because that's all you got in your tank versus those that you who may be thinking if this room really knew my life in the last four weeks, they would give me the left foot of fellowship out of here so fast. This father takes us into the desert to speak tenderly to us, to woo us. And if you need to be, if you're as stubborn and as stuck as I was and you need to burn out, you know what? It'll be a kiss of mercy, a severe mercy. But it's there that I began moving with Darlene into counseling. And you know what? Uh, my condition was such that, and really our marriage had come to the point such that our counselor said, I want you guys to do an intensive. So our counselor uh, signed us up for a 10-day intensive on the West Coast where we met with a battery of counselors uh, doing individual work and couple work. And uh, I tell you, it was, it was hard because some of my counselors were former, they were cynical former Nazarene pastors that were pissed off at pastors. So I wasn't going to impress them with my theology. And, 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 and just the work of God in my heart to show me, here's where you've been running. You've been running to theology, Scotty, more than you've been running to your father. Now, that, that's an illustration, but it's also reality. And I'm not saying to you just find somebody to beat you up that cynically thinks you're an idiot for being a Christian. That's no, I would not send you to that person. But you need to hear me say, if your need is such, 
do not begin to tell God what you're willing to do or not do. Who are you walking with that has some trust value in your life that if they say some difficult things to you, you will trust them even if it's beyond your sensibility. For me, it was a precious older counselor woman who had no graduate degree from Larry Crabb's School of Deeper Life Club. She was so uncool. She didn't know anything about infralapsarianism or propitiation. She just loved Jesus and was so wise in the spirit to say to Darlene and I, let's pray, let's go to Jesus, and let's do some hard and heart work. In my experience, may not be at all yours, I needed to, sanctuary is going to be me relinquishing control, me relinquishing the right to write the narrative and really trust God through a godly woman who still our accounts are still on speed dial 20 years later. Precious woman in Nashua named Lynn Husband. She is a godly, godly woman. We helped bury her husband at the end of his Parkinson's journey in the last few years. This woman was like a Trojan horse of gospel sanity. And the gift of doing that intensive led to other things. Uh, some other things that have been an important part of my coming into wonder, coming in to understand that, that I am, a, 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 as Jack Miller would say, I am so much worse off than I thought I was. Counseling, the intensive, walking with a gospel posse. That's language I've just cultivated several years ago to say that think now about who you are doing life with. If you're just surrounding yourselves with people that want a convenient gospel experience just to talk ministry chops or just your favorite restaurant or your favorite latte and, 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 and really want to do good, honest ministry but really have played it so safe, you don't know how to get below the waterline with each other. Break out of that pattern now. That's, that's not called fellowship. That's not koinonia. That's not a gospel posse. That's just an idle structure you've set up so that you will continue to keep your pose propped up. Only in the gospel can we stop our posing and pretending. For me, a gospel posse, I will celebrate a part of that this coming Saturday. Again, you know, that's when I turned 70 this Saturday, and, and, and my wife, who you would absolutely love, she went back to school in her 40s, got two masters from Covenant Seminary, one in counseling. She does trauma work. The last two years in Nashville, she'd been walking with women coming out of slavery, trafficking in Nashville. Unbelievable stories of just evil and redemption. But she's throwing a party, and we said, okay, we can probably squeeze 35 people into our house. Who would we want to be there? And the 35 people I most wanted from every season of my life in Jesus, they're all going to be there. And you know what the common theme of every single one of them is? We are broken and weak, and we need a big Jesus. But our friendships did not start out that way. Everybody that will be in our home this Saturday, including Stephen Curtis and his journey and story, another amazing musician that was one of the five founding members of our church, a guy named Buddy Green. You may or may not know who that is. It's not important. But every one of us have intersected life, fortunately, in the last 15 years at the point of our... We, we, we repent together, and we are a big, fat gospel posse. 
We, we, we repent together. We're becoming chief repenters. We're becoming those that know how to collapse on Jesus. As an introvert, I love doing life alone. And I've even used the introvert card as a way of excusing myself from his community. But no more. You know, for the, if you're married now, will you raise your hand? If some of you should die soon, your spouse is going to have to make a call relative to who's going to grab the six corners on that box called a casket. Would your spouse have any clue to call? Who are you walking with to such a degree that it's a no-brainer? Here's, who, here's who's going to dance on your grave because they've wept with you in life. And see, again, some of you are half the age I was when I burned out. And I'm not setting you up to perform well so you don't burn out. You, you're going to hit the wall just because you belong to Jesus. Just because you belong to Jesus, the Father's going to absolutely create circumstances of his choosing to drive you deeper into the knowledge of God without you screwing up anything. So who are you walking with now that's going to make it more likely that you're going to say, I want to be healthy. I want to live in, in Jesus' words in Luke 4, no matter how, no matter what kind of ministry impact I may have before Jesus comes back. You know what I mean when I say Luke 4? Remember when Jesus walks into that synagogue, rose, rolls open the scroll of Isaiah to Isaiah 61, and he goes on to say this, Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to announce the day of the, the year of the Lord's favor, to set prisoners free, to open blind eyes, to break oppressions. You see, the very fact that Jesus spoke those words in a synagogue would say it's in the community of faith that we need to know we are not as free, we are not as healthy, we are not as whole as Jesus intends. I know that to be true so much on these last 20 years. And I'm not getting sucker punched by a life of vain regret saying, I wish I'd known all this stuff when I was 20. Now, that would have been sweet. But you know what? In my story, it took a half a century of life for me to come to say to you, don't wait. Think of sanctuary. Think of what it means to walk. Think about, I will say this, and I'm going to be very mindful here. Okay, I'm going to say about three more minutes worth of things. Let me shift into this. This lyric music and dance, let me go right into that. Let me jump over a few things here. You're not going to miss any stuff. In fact, tomorrow morning, the good news about finishing up tomorrow morning is your last voice. Anything I've said these three nights, you can ask me about it. I'm just going to talk about tomorrow morning, just summarizing things I've learned in ministry. And so this conversation will continue. You can ask anything. But let me pick up briefly in conclusion tonight with this theme of gospel as lyric music and dance. And we see it in those three images that Asaph gives us. Back to verse 23, when he says, I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. I submit to you, that is a great example of a profound lyric of the gospel. He's, he's speaking about God's investment in his past, his present, and his future. That's not just poetry. And I want to say to all of you, as I've discovered in my own life, our problem is not theology per se. It's, 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 it's attunement. It's listening. It's coming to understand that we don't just go from observation, interpretation to application. We go observation, interpretation, 
implications application. Meaning this, that you know, here we see a, a profound commitment on Asaph's part to honor the lyric, but it's music to him. It's why, as he speaks about, as he thinks about the economy of his father that has grabbed him in the past, that is guiding him in the present and will take him into glory, that, that becomes very familial to him. And, and it's why he, his cry becomes of wonder. Whom have I in heaven but you? Not I cannot wait to get to heaven just to get out of this mess or to be in the place of streets of gold and angels dancing and everybody eating fried chicken wearing white wrinkleless robes forever. I hope you got a far better theology of heaven than that, and we'll finish with that in a minute because I love what we've been singing all night. But see, mind your own heart. Do the things you believe, have they, have they, have they never been music to your soul? Have you found yourself in life and ministry leading more with your rightness than with kindness? And perchance, indeed, part of what's in front of you is the call to gospel astonishment. You know, where, where, did you, where did you not get that part of the gospel call? It's music, which is the heart that really is coming alive again and again and again. And, and you, when you preach or teach with passion, Zephaniah 3.17, you know what it feels like to have a God, a triune God that greatly delights in you. You're not just trying to find a way to illustrate that for high school kids that are looking for delight anywhere else but God. You, you know out of the overflow of having been found and wooed and met in your brokenness and weakness and, and, and through whatever it might look like, your, your screw-ups or your simply burnouts, a father that greatly delights in you, a father that says through the good news of this gospel, he will never, never love you more than he does tonight and he will never love you less. He loves you as much as he loves Jesus, and there's nothing you can do about it. That is the theology we defend. It needs to be the doxology that we enjoy. And I so, I had to burn out because I, you know, my, my, uh, my teachers in elementary school and middle school, I mean, uh, I had ADD before they put those three letters together. I heard so much of the time, get your butt back in your seat. Sit down, little Scotty. And the restlessness and the nonstop movement I had by God's grace to be brought to the point where when the Lord says, be still and know that I am God, if I will not willingly be still, God absolutely put a lock on the wheels and the carriage of my heart. And I'm so glad. I'm the guy that you would have met if you ever tried to compliment me. I would have absolutely deflected anything you had to say because I know me better than you. And anything you might be tempted to say about me in appreciation, I would blow it off. Far easier to live a life of pragmatically being useful than risking the belief that you absolutely do matter to the living God. Worship team, come on up here, by the way. You guys come on up. The lyric of this gospel, it's music again. What must God do to slow you down enough to hear again? And, and this third image of the dance of the gospel. Let me, let me make some connections there. The dance of the gospel in terms of rec recovery and growth and movement forward dances two things. It's quite literally that picture in Luke 15 of the father that throws a party 
to which he absolutely pursues, invites, and compels both of his sons to get on the dance floor. So I would say to you in this season of your life, it's not even enough just to say that the lyric of the gospel is sweet in your ear and you're beginning to hear its music. But you see, uh, what, what will moving forward into the dance floor look like for you as you prepare to leave this place? Who are you? Perhaps even before this night's over, you're going to say, will you guys pray for me? I know an appointment I need to make when I get back. I, I, I know this. I, I, I want, and, it, and it's a beckoning father. Uh, you know, who would have ever thought of something like counseling or meeting with my pastor or my spiritual mom, uh, getting, getting into an environment that doesn't look like a dance at all, but, but moving to the point where I will absolutely relinquish control and say, will you pray for me? Will you help me? Last thing about the uniqueness of the, the, the dance of this gospel, and this is so sweet, and it's what, one of the real, real, real tenets of RYM, and I'm so glad. The gospel comes to us that it might run through us. When I mentioned earlier that we are characters in God's story and carriers of it, you see, part of the great ending, and I conclude with this, a, a part, the last thing that Asaph says, that, that third aspect of looking at the God who loves in the past and the present and the future, that, that, that future picture, and you will take me into glory. That's the function of hope. See, the function of hope and you beginning to get healthy and slowing down enough, you're not going to be stuck in your issues. But let me tell you this, the more, the more currently you are alive to the love of God, the more you will want to live in his story to his glory. And I love how Paul frames that in Romans 16, 20, at that glorious benediction at the end of, end of Romans when he says, and the God of all peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And it functions like this. This lyric, music, and dance of this gospel, a father pursuing us, a Jesus that's married himself to us, a spirit that lives within us to declare the wonder and the reality of it. He is delighted to lead us into a life of ministry, leading with a lamp. The gift you will give your kids is not being emotionally voyeuristic about all the stuff of your story, all the stupid stuff you did in high school but smell like grace to your kids because the aroma of grace is fresh to you. And live and function with a, a vision of hope. See, we, we are living on stormy banks right now. But the more you read scripture, the more you hear Asaph say, and afterward you will take me into glory. Again, that's a vision of, as we look to the end of God's word in Revelation 21 and 22, we begin to understand that kingdom is absolutely barreling towards us now. And though it feels so paradoxical to be weak in ministry, to think I can be of good to anybody, it's precisely at the very point of your weakness and your limp that the gospel is going to become a sweet sucker reality to the students that dare you to make the gospel real to them. Dear friends, smell the grass of the new earth now. Richard Baxter, I'm going to walk away from the podium to let you know I'm really not lying. Richard Baxter was in prison 16 years for no other reason than he was preaching the gospel. King of England hated the fact that Baxter preached grace. 16 years in prison. He said at the end of the 16 years, I'm now convinced 
that the best thing Christians can do every single day is to meditate upon heaven 30 minutes every day because we will be earthly good to the extent that the wonder of our living hope possesses our hearts. And I pray that for us. I pray as we sing a final song now about a hope that we will know what's in front of us, becoming healthier, owning some stuff, voicing some concerns, bearing each other's burdens. Dear friends, your labors in the Lord are not in vain. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus' labor for you was perfect and complete. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you. We are out of time in this moment on the cusp of another fun evening in this city. Receive our praise, continue to woo us, continue, Lord, to bring us into the lyric music and the dance of this glorious gospel. We pray with great joy and thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Scotty.